this is Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for joining us. I'm Henry. And I'm Danny. We're here to tear apart recent stories about our nation's armed forces and our veterans. We hope you'll take a critical look at what's happening with our military. And we hope you enjoy the show. Now, let's get started. All right, hey guys. So, uh, this week we're going to talk drone warfare and all its the the future of drone warfare which uh, ai may become the uh, the new infantry of sorts or at least uh, uh, an addition to the infantry in future warfare and something we've got to keep our eyes on but absolutely i want to talk about trump and putin <laughs> you know i stopped watching msnbc and those of you who listen regularly know i'm kind of a bleeding heart liberal but uh but i can't watch msnbc anymore because it became the all russia network conspiracy theory all the time and i've just never believed that there's been enough evidence to prove that Trump purposely colluded with the Russians or with Putin uh, in order to influence the election. I, I don't think that the president um, is quite sharp enough or savvy enough for that. I don't think his campaign was sharp enough or savvy enough. That, that doesn't mean that I don't think there has been uh, some some really you know, shady dealings between members of the Trump campaign and Putin and between some of Trump's statements and, and, and some of the Russian preferences. All I'm saying is I've sort of I've always thought that the Democrats were taking the wrong path by choosing this, the, the Russian collaboration thing, as their means to get Trump out of office. I, I could be wrong, but I, I would be if I were a betting man, I would lay everything on the line that we will not see President Trump impeached as a result of the Mueller investigation. Part of that is because uh, I don't think that there was collusion on the level that Rachel Maddow seems to think so. And the second reason is there's a Republican Congress that wouldn't remove him, even if he killed someone on Fifth Avenue, as he so aptly said during the campaign. But I am willing to talk about Trump and Russia today because there's something substantive to talk about that's gone on in the last two weeks, and that's the Helsinki summit. So this is the first time that uh, a Russian-American leader met in sort of a one-on-one setting in a foreign location in, in quite some time. Okay, this uh, this hasn't happened yet in the Trump administration. It, it only uh, rarely happened during the Obama administration. Tensions between the United States and Russia, at least if you listen to the intelligence agencies of the United States, as well as a bipartisan consensus of congressmen and women of the United States, you would see that uh, U.S.-Russia relations are apparently at their lowest point in quite some time. The threat of nuclear war, according to the doomsday clock that the American and international scientists keep, uh, really has shown that we're getting ever closer to midnight and the threat of nuclear winter higher than ever. That being said, one would think that Trump and Putin meeting, talking and coming to some sort of agreement would be a positive thing. Only that's not how it's been reported. You see, if we had responsible media in this country, like the British do and like some other countries do, there would be a complex conversation that would go something like this, at least in my opinion. It would say, it is, number one, a very good thing that President Trump and President Putin are working to avoid a future war and are trying to come up with some sort of settlement for things like the Syrian civil war and the Ukraine crisis and other flashpoints between the two countries. And that responsible news reporting would say, Yes, it's it's a good thing that we're trying to avoid a major power war between two nuclear armed superpowers. But it would also probably say, well, all that being said, Donald Trump's optics 
and his language at the summit and especially at the press conference afterwards have left something to be desired. But we don't have that kind of conversation in the United States. What we have is the right, which says suddenly the right loves Russia. Very interesting because the, the, the political right has always been so anti-Russia. Suddenly they're, they're, they're pro-Russia or at least they're pro-detente or, or peace with Russia. And Trump can do no wrong in their eyes. He's doing the absolute right thing. Okay, and there's no criticism of the optics, no criticism of the fact that President Trump uh, defied all 17 American intelligence agencies by saying that he believes Putin, that Putin did not, uh, you know, meddle in our elections, which is patently false. There is uh, plenty of evidence that he at least meddled in the elections. Now, of course, we do the same thing. And meddling in an American election is not quite the same as actually influencing an American election. It also doesn't mean that there are Russians actually getting in our polling booths and changing votes. There's no evidence of any of that. But the Republican media, if we had a responsible public media, they would say, yeah, it's a good thing that there's peace, but some of the optics and some of Trump's statements left something to be desired. And they would criticize those statements, especially the part where he really undercut his own intelligence agencies. And that's crazy. And then on the left, we have hysteria. And... I've never seen the left so hawkish about Russia. If you watch MSNBC from morning till night, you would think that war with Russia is not only inevitable, but it is a good thing. Yep. And the only thing holding it back is a treasonous president, Donald Trump. Well, that's not responsible talk either. Since when are the liberals or the so-called liberals so in favor of hawkish policies, so in favor of bellicosity with Russia? So it just seems to me that when we talk about this Trump-Putin summit in Helsinki, the media, which has become completely corporate and completely partisan, is doing all of us a disservice by either cheering Trump without any criticism on the right or, you know, labeling Trump as a traitor and calling for everything up to and including war with Russia on the left. It's like we're through the looking glass here. And so what I want to do is I want to give you my opinion. And, and, and Henry, tell me what you think. I think it is a positive thing that President Trump is willing to meet with and discuss major world issues with Vladimir Putin. I think it's a good thing that they're going to try to come up with some sort of settlement in Syria. Because the reality is neither of us is going to win in Syria completely. Russia's not going to be able to force us out, and we're not going to be able to force them out. And so there's going to be some sort of you know, detente line or some sort of de-escalation line that divides Syria, at least in the short term. It's not the first time that's ever happened, right? We had a divided Vietnam. We had a divided Korea. Expect a divided Syria in, the, in at least the short to medium term. Making a settlement on the Ukraine and Crimea probably also makes sense. The fact on the ground is that Russia controls Crimea and most Crimeans want to be controlled by Russia because they are Russian-speaking ethnic Russians. Did Vladimir Putin sort of flout international law by just, you know, marching in and then holding a referendum? Yes. And there's room to criticize that. But the reality is we're not going to get the Russians out of Crimea. A settlement in the Ukraine is also necessary. The point is there are major flashpoints between the United States and Russia, but none of them require a war. None of the competing sort of conflicts between the United States and Russia would actually make a war sensible. War with Russia is not an option. And the thing is, I think Vladimir Putin knows that. 
He is a savvy character, and he is a realist. He will push as far as he can without going to war, but he does not actually want war. So I think it is a good thing that President Trump is willing to meet with him. I think it's a good thing that President Trump says such shocking things like maybe we shouldn't go to war with Russia. But I also think President Trump is a very poor communicator on this issue. And it is not a good idea to leave all 17 of your intelligence agencies out in the cold and make it seem like you trust an autocrat like Vladimir Putin at his word over the informed opinion of your Justice Department as well as your 17 intelligence agencies. So the point is, I think that it's a it's a good thing that Trump is meeting with Putin and we're trying to hash these things out. I think it would be a great thing if we could at least coexist with Russia without our fingers on the nuclear trigger. There's been some really good articles this week. Rand Paul wrote an article defending Trump. And as you know, Rand Paul, senator from Kentucky, is also very critical of Trump on other issues. So he's consistent in the sense that he does not necessarily take a partisan line on this. And uh, Pat Buchanan, a former Republican uh, candidate for president or uh, in the primaries for president, uh, who is anti-war and criticizes Russia or I'm sorry, criticizes Trump on his foreign policy all the time, also defended Trump this week in an article saying that it was a good thing. That being said, uh, I think there's room for criticism of the optics of this whole thing. Uh, Trump uh, could use some help getting rid of his brash confidence when it comes to these press conferences and maybe show a little bit of modesty. But uh, I will tell you, I'm getting pretty tired of this alarmism on the left. And uh, and I'm a person of the left. And, and I, I'm just I think it's it's very irresponsible of us not to recognize that peace with Russia is necessary and that some sort of settlement is necessary. Yeah, the 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 response, not just to recent events in Russia, but the response of the Democrats since Trump was inaugurated is to be much more militaristic. Anytime that there's, you know, anytime Russia has come up, they have been out in front. And I, I think that they believe that there's no way they can optically be honest about what's happening with Russia and our election system without paying a severe penalty. Because if they act weak, then come midterms, the Republicans are going to be able to talk about that. Now, I don't think that that's actually relevant in the least, but I think that that's what they're focusing on. The other part of it is that you, um, you, know, you have, you have there, there are a lot of really huge pro-war Democrats. Tim Kaine is, is one immediately comes to mind. Um, but last, last podcast, you talked about um, the possibility of withdrawing troops from certain parts of NATO. And the response from the allies in that way. And the allies were terrified. And I think, again, it's this beast we've created. It's it, Like you said, is that Vladimir Putin has no real interest in going to war. But the optics of trying to go to war are getting him a lot of the things that he wants. And I think Trump is trying to piggyback on that a little bit. Today there was some really dumb quote he made about Iran. Nothing's happening with Iran. We haven't had, you know... Iran really hasn't been in the news other than it's supporting Syria in our standoff in the Middle East. That's it. So why make this huge, you know, fire and brimstone, I can't remember what the hell he said, tweet that has no relevance to real life, not that that's anything different for Donald Trump, but it's, it's, it's getting our goat, it's getting, and it's getting our allies' goat, and they're spending more and more. Uh, I saw just day before yesterday that in the we've already beaten 2017's weapon sales record, and we're only seven months into 2018. 
So I think that that's part of this. I think that Trump see, I don't know that he's smart as smart of this, but I think Trump could see stirring this big pot as a way to bring the other allies that are a little more distant, um, you know, maybe like Germany. Germany has really, really been getting his goat lately. And so this is this is a way to kind of maybe stick it to him, maybe get a few more missile sales out of him. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I agree that the NATO component is also important to this. And he was perceived on this last trip as having sort of uh, snubbed NATO in favor of Putin. And, and I don't think the reporting on that has been fair. Again, he, his language is poor and he's he, he's not good at sort of uh, reassuring allies. No, that's, that's, a, no, that's no. a problem. But at the same time, I, you know, I agree. And we did talk about this last week that, you know, no Russian invasion of Germany is coming. No, nope. no Russian nope. invasion of Poland is even coming. No. Nope. And so, the, you know, for America to continue to provide uh, an unlimited perpetual security umbrella for these countries is un uh, unrealistic when Russia's economy is about the size of Italy's. But, you know, but, but NATO has a weak hand. NATO, NATO has gotten used to this arrangement, though. They've gotten used to us between, you know, throughout all of the Cold War, not counting World War II, we've had troops all over NATO countries. And so now we're digging up these other things, and they're starting to ask themselves, do we really want to do all this military spending, or do we want to let Trump say nasty things about us and let the Americans do our heavy lifting? Right. Because almost all we do in all... Uh, you know, they might send Germany might send some trainers. Spain, I remember Spain had a really small contingent in 04 when I got there. These guys don't want to send mass troops anywhere. They're perfectly content with us doing it, assuming they're okay with that at all. But but they don't want to say anything about it to, in order not to alienate them. Yeah, and it works out perfectly because they can they continue they can continue to spend on social programs, healthcare, government investment, education, all the things we don't invest in because yep. we're so busy fighting wars across the entire world, the Europeans are, are able to invest in those things. And by every marker, including infant death rates, life expectancy, the happiness index, by almost every you know, marker of success, the Europeans are superior to the United States. The only thing the United States is truly superior in is military force and the ability to project power. And you know, it's a shame that we live in a country that is number one at only one thing, and it's death, killing, destruction defense in quotes however you want to call it and that's one thing <clears throat> we're gonna dig up today with dealing with drones is how how do we find the justification to say that we're defending our country with drone strikes in countries that we have no active hostilities with and even if and even so with people that are american citizens all right guys um so we're going to talk about drones today, and I have an article that I want to use as uh, the lead-in for this before we get into the meat and potatoes of it. And it, the article talks about um, how a company called General Atomics, which they are the creators of the ever-famous Predator drone and the new Reaper drone that is uh, slowly replacing it, um, and... The article is, uh, focuses on the controls, them swapping out controls for people to be able to um, better see their targets. And they're in the process of buying 350 more Reapers, which can drop missiles or can shoot missiles and drop bombs. Each of them are 16 million apiece. 
Now, the ground control stations that can work for both Predators and Reapers, they feature just four relatively low-resolution screens, two uh, around 12 inches wide, two around 20 inches wide for each crew member, plus one shared 20-inch center screen. The small screens display technical data on the drone and its weapons and sensors. One big screen showed a digital map, and the other showed uh, crew members what the drone was physically seeing uh, through its cameras. Now, compared to the pilots of manned warplanes, the early generation of drone operators had a really narrow and grainy view of the world. That could make it difficult to tell, say, an insurgent or terrorist from civilians in the same village. The UK-based Bureau of Investigative Journalism counted 430 American drone strikes between 2004 and 2018, resulting in as many as 4,026 deaths, including up to 969 bystanders, orders of magnitude greater than the figures released by the DOD. Now, <clears throat> it's important to note about how fatigue can compound the stress of wartime decision-making. Drone flights can last 12 hours or more, and as the demand for drone missions outpaced the Air Force's ability to train fresh operators, the service required crews to work longer hours and take fewer days off. That's just a, a pretty ordinary thing in the military if you're down people, is you just expand hours or you just take away days off. Now, some of these people have flown in combat for two, three, four, five years straight. And that the amount of drops really surged in 2015 as the Air Force was dropping tons of bombs on, on ISIS. And with dozens of drones and hundreds of crew members, the 432nd Wing that's at uh, Creech Air Force Base in Nevada, it's the biggest unit of that, of that uh, uh, makeup in the entire Air Force. But the wing is also home of, quote, the Drone Doctors, a small task force of operational psychologists, uh, physiologists, flight surgeons, and chaplains known as the Human Performance Team, who have top-secret clearance to meet dr with drone personnel grappling with occupational burnout. So... The Air Force is getting ready to go through a whole huge series of upgrades designed to make uh, screens bigger and more visible and also to, are designed to much more closely mimic the view of a pilot actually in a fighter jet. Um, the improved Block 30 station with more and larger screens, it rolled out a few years ago and it's quickly becoming the Air Force standard drone control station. Now, that's military industrial complex speak for not all our drone pilots have the Block 30 station, meaning some are still using Block 20. And so, and I, I want to point out is that earlier when I was talking about the fuzzy screens and everything, that's the shit they're using. So right. even here in 2018, some of our drone pilots don't have good clear views. And I don't just worry about that for armed drones. I'd worry about that for surveillance drones too, because what about the mountains? What about other, you know, terrain and stuff? If you can't see, you can't, properly fly all right so um but the most significant change will come with the block 50 control station which features six 24 inch touchscreen displays for each operator the three topmost screens arranged side by side display the drone's own camera feed giving the pilot a view that's more than three times wider than that of older control stations 
Additionally, the main joystick for steering the drone using the Block 50 platform more closely matches the models found in manned fighter jets. Though as a backup for extremely long missions, General Atomics added a PlayStation-style controller that's easier to hold for hours on end. A drone pilot can switch between controllers depending on whether realism or endurance possesses a greater challenge at the time. Now, here's, here's the most striking thing about all this. These guys also operate with a team of attorneys. There are a team of JAG lawyers that are stationed with these drone guys that help them determine the legality of what they're currently doing. How messed up is it that something you're doing on a daily basis requires attorneys to clear to ensure that, that it's, it's good? I mean, it speaks to the imprecise nature, ultimately, of all warfare. If the drones were as precise and uh, as able to avoid civilian casualties as we've been told they are, I can't imagine there would be a need for lawyers in the room. Yeah, I can't imagine there would be a need for lawyers to clear to clear every strike. I remember when I was in Afghanistan. Um, in the end, the uh, battalion XO, who was a major, usually had clearance authority um, to to drop a bomb. So uh, from from an armed drone. So uh, we on the ground would call to uh, for support. Then maybe there'd be a, a drone overhead, maybe a predator, um, and then. Uh, the commander on the ground, which was me, would give approval, and then in the talk back at the bigger base, the battalion XO or the battalion commander would give a final approval before they dropped. And sometimes they did call lawyers to make sure that they were uh, cleared to go. And so, you know, that always struck me as strange that we would need to do that if 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 we weren't worried about collateral damage, if there wasn't an um, inherent risk of alienating the population, then why would we even need the lawyers, you know? Exactly. And, and, and these drone operators are even more extreme examples of that because they do this as a matter of course. I wonder, and I, I know I mentioned this a lot, but, the, but the, we talk about how technology is giving us greater distance from war that we're now becoming so detached from our from our targets, from our from the countries we're actually actively bombing, that an attorney has to give us an approval. You know, it's it's that it's that. I'm trying to think of the right word to describe it, but the the um, it almost seems like how an attorney would justify a police officer using deadly force, regardless right. of whether the deadly force was actually needed. So it's an extremely litigious. Uh, type of warfare and, and, and it is really different from the Second World War or conventional wars between um, major nations which we really haven't fought one of those since the Gulf War of 1991 um, what concerns me in particular are the sort of black side of the house the, uh, the more secretive side of the house when the Department of Defense is dropping the bombs there are more rules and there's more transparency for the public. When the CIA or other three-letter agencies are dropping the bombs, a lot more of it is kept secretive. And so we don't know if there are lawyers there. There may very well be. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the statistics on civilian casualties, et cetera, are not as apparent when a different three-letter agency besides the DOD is clearing and dropping the bombs. And we have a structure now where... 
what is inherently a military action, which is dropping a bomb on someone's head, is now being utilized by paramilitary organizations that are not part of the Department of Defense. And so we've spread out the killing uh, responsibility and authority to agencies besides our military. And that's sort of dangerous. I mean, it, it, it raises a whole lot of questions about uh, supremacy, about um, uh, authorization, and, uh, and, and who, you know, has jurisdiction. And, and I think it's, it's a dangerous thing. And your article really sort of speaks to that. So we're going to get started on our main story about drones today. And I, I have a couple things that I'd like all of you to keep in mind as, as we're talking about this. What does it mean to hate blue skies? To not appreciate a clear day because there's a chance of getting bombed. There's a chance of seeing a drone, which you don't know if it has bombs or not. What does it mean when I can take 20 minutes and find seven or eight weddings in the Middle East that were bombed, determined to be targets because the people at the wedding were celebrating by firing rifles into the air? Not a great decision on its own, but certainly you would think they would think through more than to, to bomb a bunch of, you know, let's say, you know, one out of every four was holding a rifle. How does that make any kind of sense? I want you to think about a number that I have here, and the number is 186. It takes 186 people to get, to, to get a drone to be dropping bombs. That's counting drone operators, mechanics, the people who built the drone, the people who authorized the drone. We've talked before that we're now at a point in military ops where we usually deploy contractors five contractors for every one person. So think about that one drone needing 186 people from origin to dropping bombs. Now, don't get me wrong, drones have some neat advantages that troops and even manned aircraft don't have. Um, they're lighter, which means that they can fly a lot further. Um, they certainly utilize less fuel uh, pilots can swap out with each other as opposed to a pilot in an, in an F-15 who has to stay up for as long as his mission requires him to be up. The, one of the things that I read for researching this was a book called The Assassination Complex by Jeremy Scahill. And uh, Kagan, thank you for recommending it. Um, and what it is is a collection of articles about uh, about mass surveillance, and especially about drone warfare. And it mentions something that is just so hilarious to me, and it's a term called the tyranny of distance. And this, um, it's, it's uh, how, how far do troops, aircraft, whatever you need for a mission, have to travel in order to actually get there? But in ops, in actual manuals and op orders, they're referring it to it as... The tyranny of distance makes this mission harder, for example. I didn't realize that something tyrannical could come out of writing op orders. Or, or, it's just so fucking hilarious to me. All right, so now Camp Limonier in Djibouti is a main drone launching base. And it's 500 kilometers from Camp Djibouti, uh, excuse me, from Camp Limonier, Lim, excuse me, Limonier, right, Danny? Camp Limonier right. 
to Yemen, and it's around 1,000 clicks, 1,000 kilometers from Camp Lemonnier to Somalia. And so, you know, it was, it was clear in reading, reading through some of this stuff that drones have allowed us to go after targets far, far, far away from any kind of military visibility. So it means anything that goes wrong there isn't going to be seen by us other than possibly the drone operator, but if the target's done and they've done their whatever their after action that they have to go through, why would they continue to go back there? Now, drones can also be controlled much more than utilizing local proxy forces. Uh, notice so much these days that, and, and I think it's just the nature of the way we train guys, is that our proxy forces, American and other countries, they commit a lot of war crimes generally because they're operating in areas where there is no visibility. There aren't American troops on the ground, so who the fuck is going to complain about them? But a drone doesn't have that problem. A drone isn't going to suddenly go off mission unless there's a mechanical failure, but even then, there's a lot more chance that you're actually going to visibly see the target and have some kind of intelligence out of it. We don't, uh, I've been skimming over this, but we don't put any American personnel in danger. So there's no chance of any of our guys, the lives that we valued the most, from being harmed, nor the expenditures for their mission, which I'm, I'm sure it's, you know, to send a 12-man JSOC team somewhere versus a single drone strike, there, there's no contest. I bet the, the, the whole, almost the whole drone costs less than the, uh, than the entire mission for the JSOC guys. Now, a drone can remain in constant contact with the battlefield. It doesn't, it doesn't get tired, and like I mentioned earlier, operators can swap out. So a drone could fly over a target for days, might leave it to go and look at something else for a little bit, but they can, and think about what that does to the people. Think about the, 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 the people on the ground, and again, not knowing what kind of drone it is or why the fuck it's there. Now, there's also some very specific disadvantages to using drones, and some of these are really tactical in nature, so I don't know why I didn't find more about them as I research. Drones give zero opportunity to collect human intel. Papers, computers, cell phones, caches of weapons, and so forth. All of those invaluable items of intelligence are destroyed when we use drone strikes. Uh, it, the, the strikes uh, truncate the find-finish-fix cycle, being the, the how they, acronym that they use for trying to find guys. Finding them, fixing the location on them through human or SIGINT intelligence, and then finishes, bomb them, and kill them. Now, by doing using drones, it puts all of these three things together without exploitation and analysis, precisely the components that were lacking in the drone campaign waged in East Africa and Yemen. That shortfall points to one of the contradictions at the heart of the drone program in general. Assassinations are intelligence dead ends. So... That leaves, there's, there's typically nobody on the ground to collect written material or computers, check out the suspect's bodies, cell phones, and most importantly, to ask questions of people who saw the strike and might be able to point you in the right direction. Then we have the part of not being able to be there on the ground that's the most horrifying, and that is not uh, the, the un, unseen civilian casualties that come with utilizing drones. Relying on less than sound intelligence without human intelligence on the ground could 
undermine the, the reliability of the strikes. The context in which drones are often used, uh, ergo in areas that are difficult to access by conventional forces, can complicate the ability to co conduct pre- and post-strike assessments and post-strike investigations and to provide post-harm remedy in the event of credi credibly reported casualties. Yet if the United States asserts it has the intelligence to carry out lethal strikes, it should also be able to carry out these assessments, which are critical for the government to evaluate the legality and wisdom of its own actions and to persuade allies, opponents, and the public that its actions are legitimate. Most drone strikes rely very heavily on SIGINT, Signals Intelligence, SIGINT being the acronym we use to make it go faster. A whole lot of drone strikes sit on somebody's cell phone and who was last using that cell phone and where that cell phone called from. How it, although it accounted for more than half the intelligence collected on targets, much of it coming from foreign partners. The rest originated with human intelligence, primarily obtained by the CIA. These sources are neither timely nor focused as tactical intelligence from interrogations or seized materials. Making matters worse, the documents refer to poor and limited abilities for collecting signals intelligence, implying a double bind in which kill operations are reliant on sparse amounts of inferior intelligence. In 2011, for example, U.S. officials told the Wall Street Journal that they had inadvertently killed a local governor because Yemeni officials didn't tell them he would be present at a gathering of al-Qaeda figures hit by a drone. We think, uh, the, we think we got played, one official said. Um, the, the Yemeni government actually disputed the report. But despite such outcomes, the drone program has relied heavily on intelligence for other countries. One slide in the study this is referencing describes signal intelligence is coming often from foreign partners and another titled Alternatives to Exploit Analyze. In the reduced access environment, national intelligence partners often have the best information and access. One way to increase the reliability of host nation intelligence is to be directly involved in its collection, but this can be risky for soldiers on the ground. The study called for advanced force operations, including small teams of special forces advisors, to work with foreign forces to capture combatants, interrogate them, and seize any written material or electronic devices they possess. According to Public Special Operations Guidelines, advanced forces, advanced force operations, excuse me, prepare for near-term actions by planning small tracking devices, conducting recon missions, and staging for attacks. So there's one real key thing to understand about getting any kind of intelligence from a foreign government. We don't exactly know why it is that they're giving it to us. They may give us one reason, and there's really an entirely different reason. And Danny, I know you've, you've referenced this before about us being the unwitting murderers or, or um, giving intelligence like, um, because we were, got involved in a struggle that had nothing to do with us and that we weren't properly briefed about. So right now, we public, uh, it's not public what the Trump administration's policy on drone warfare is. It's something that the media has been trying to get for a while, but it hasn't been released. Um, so most of the stuff that we're referencing today is from stats and figures and reports that were taken during the Obama administration. 
Um, and in fact, during the Obama administration, the U.S. came to rely on lethal strikes, mostly conducted by drones, but also some fixed-wing aircraft, as a key component of its counterterrorism operations. From Obama's inauguration to his, him leaving the office, he authorized more than 550 strikes in Pakistan, Yemen, and Somalia, as well as other countries where the United States was not at war. By comparison, President uh, George W. Bush authorized 49 strikes during his tenure in office in Pakistan and Yemen, and President Trump has authorized at least 80 in his first year in office in Pakistan, Yemen, and Somalia, and is on pace to surpass the strike tempo of both of his predecessors. Which brings us to our next, our next thing about a really bad component of drone warfare, and it's something called blinking. So I mentioned earlier about drones wanting to be on site for a certain amount of time. Well, given how in demand drones are for reconnaissance purposes, drones will often leave target areas and go look at something else, or they'll have to go back and refuel and return, or weather keeps them from seeing, or they have equipment malfunction, or I can keep going. I'm sure you get the point. All right. But... So when they do get the drone to be back on site of the target that they're, at, they're supposed to be surveilling, they have no idea what happened in there. You know, a family reunion of 18 people could have now joined that terrorist leader, but that's not going to be included. Now keep in mind with this whole thing about blinking is that when a kill authorization is given, it usually comes with a 60-day window. And because of all the horrendous administrative steps that it takes to go from finding any kind of terrorist intel to actually making a strike, it really puts these, these guys on a wanting to strike over not wanting to strike because if they lose their window, they have to go through all that again. And to include other windows, like I mentioned, with the weather and leaving and all that other stuff. So it, it, it really invites error. Yeah, no, so I was, I was going to jump in and, and kind of add in a few other thoughts about the weaknesses of drone warfare, you know, um, all the points you raised are just so vital. And, and I'm really glad that, you know, you, you read the Jeremy Scahill book. He's really been on the forefront of this reporting since the start. I've got a lot of concerns with drone warfare. And just like you, I recognize there's a value in the use of drones. It can protect our pilots. Um, it's, it's incredible eye in the sky. It gives us reconnaissance capabilities we've never had before. And yet, when President Obama came to rely so heavily on drones, I was uncomfortable. And there were a few reasons for this. One of them has to do with sovereignty. You mentioned these strikes in Pakistan, Yemen, and Somalia, countries we're not at war with. We violate the airspace of these three nations, as well as many others, in order to conduct strikes, either within those nations or in adjoining nations. How will the United States respond, inevitably, when Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, and other countries start to utilize drone warfare at the same level as us? Will we be accepting their violation of the airspace and sovereignty of our allies or of our partners or potentially of the United States? I think the answer is, of course, no. And if the answer is no, then we are not only sounding hypocritical, but we're placing ourselves in a situation where we may have to go to war in order to police those boundaries. So the fact that we no longer declare war the fact that we no longer even get authorizations for the use of military force to expand our wars tells me that drone warfare 
by its very nature contains the um, the potential and the uh, temptation to constantly escalate wars, okay? Because you're violating the airspace of these countries. And the second thing that concerns me about it is the assassination component. Now, we don't call it assassination at the top of the DOD because we're uncomfortable with that term. And also because assassinations are illegal. But targeted strikes are not. So mm-hmm. we don't conduct assassinations, right? We come up with the euphemism. These are targeted strikes. And there's a place for them. But President Obama, who in many ways was a, an extra, extraordinarily smart, extraordinarily qualified president with definite humanitarian impulses. Okay, this is not an evil guy, but he was holding Terror Tuesday meetings where they essentially had uh, a stack of baseball cards of people they were trying to assassinate. And, and they would pick targets for that week and he would approve some on Terror Tuesday. Okay, this has been widely reported in open source media by people on the inside of the administration. Now, you may trust President Obama with that power, which I don't think you ought to, but you may, if you're, especially if you're a liberal. But do you trust President Trump? Will you trust the next guy or gal? It seems like there are so many precedents that we are setting and so many lines we are crossing with this drone warfare that ought to really concern us as we think about the future. And the third thing that I'll say is the nature of the strikes. You mentioned all the, the, some of the flaws in the persistent reconnaissance uh, and the targeting and the civilian casualties. But one of the ways that many of these drone strikes are actually utilized is not uh, through SIGINT necessarily and not through targeting of an individual, but what's called signature strikes. And signature strikes are much less precise than the targeted killings or assassinations, as human beings would call them, if there was any soul in our language. And these these signature strikes, what they mean is there's circumstantial evidence on the feed of the drone that leads us to believe the people we're looking at are bad guys. That could be a gathering of a lot of young men. It could be the presence of a lot of weapons. It could be uh, the utilization of certain vehicles in certain areas. And essentially, uh, a, a, a conglomeration of circumstantial evidence leads the operator to get approval to strike these individuals on the ground. Signature strikes tend to have more civilian casualties because they are less precise, because they are imperfect as a means of striking. I'm not saying they should never be used, but I think they have to be regulated very carefully because the perception on the ground, as you said at the stop, the start of this session, is People are t- terrified of blue skies because they're terrified that blue skies mean American drones can buzz at will. The perception among many people in South Asia and the Middle East is that the United States is a soulless, faceless army that uses robots to do their killing for them. We're seen as unmanly, as, uh, as, as lacking in chivalry, and as completely robotic in our killing. And, and, and the problem with that is those perceptions on the ground eventually do affect our soldiers when we do put people, when we do finally put soldiers on the ground because in the end you can't secure territory without boots on the ground by the time we get there the use of drones has oftentimes made us so unpopular on the ground so tarnished our image that we're actually in more danger when we do eventually place soldiers in those positions so what's my point well my point is there are a lot of flaws in drone warfare And perhaps the main one is that we would never accept, we, the United States of America, I could never imagine would accept 
the violations of sovereignty that are inherent in our uh, casual use of drones. And if that's true, we better get our minds right because drone warfare is here to stay and it will not remain an American, uh, an American monopoly for very long. It already isn't. And we're going to see more and more use of these tools of the trade by our adversaries. So we're talking Russia, Iran, China, you name it. And so I think we need to be very careful with the precedents we set. Remember, George Washington was not required to leave office after two terms as president. He could have stayed as long as possible based on the laws of the Constitution at the time. But he set an important precedent that was followed for 33 consecutive presidents after him of leaving office after two terms. The reason I tell that little vignette is this. The precedents that the United States are setting with our uses of drones are going to come back and haunt us when other countries around the world start utilizing drones on the same level. So I just wanted to add that two cents and, and remind people how really dramatic this is in terms of the way it has changed warfare. And AI, artificial intelligence, robots, whatever you want to call it, are going to be a major, major component of any future war. And we better be ready to accept the precedence we've set when our adversaries start doing the same things. So I wanted to go in to a little bit about consumer drones. And it's really important to include them in this discussion because all kinds of different consumer drones, little camera ones and ones that can actually move things or even ones that can drop bombs. I know they, um, uh, the Special Forces Command recently grounded some of their the quadcopters that they had bought for that because there was some kind of software um, uh, there was some some way that they uh, they were worried insurgents were going to be able to hack into them but i found an article from vice it talks about there's already an ongoing pipeline of consumer drones going between the u.s and the uk and isis in a variety of spots in the middle east and they've utilized a series of dum dummy corporations at each end along with various spots in between. There's also a similar pipeline between ISIS and China as China further expands its drone market. When the Iraqis took back Mosul in 2016, they found a set of documents that belonged to ISIS drone makers and suppliers. And it's so funny to me, Danny, reading about, you know, talking about them having to turn in a standardized four-page form and right. do this and this and this, and they're halfway to being our army already. Um, they found purchase lists that included items such as GPS units and memory cards. Um, it, 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 to me, it really felt like going to, going to supply before a deployment because the Army would give us so much stuff, even sometimes stuff that we had no practical need for. Now, given that our, technical our technological advances push enemy fighters to do the same, it's important to note how ISIS and other groups have adapted since 9-11, since we've started being... Uh, a massive force in the Middle East. Um, IED, improvised explosive uh, device technology, has improved a great deal. Um, the ability to create their own mun munitions, like mortars, is another huge one. So will go drones and their advances. And as we advance and bring drones into the lowest levels of our military, like I'm sure these days, uh, guys that are deploying probably are being issued drones. Maybe a one squad leader has a drone, or there's a couple per platoon, so they can do they can use the camera to look at things and see things they wouldn't otherwise be able to, I'm sure. 
Um, and once again, globalization and capitalism, I wonder how long it'll, it will be until a major U.S. commercial drone maker is found unknowingly selling drones and their components to terrorist groups. China is already doing that. Then, I, I mentioned something earlier I want to go back to real quick, and it's about how drones are changing small, ordinary units. Uh, Raytheon is now selling its Coyote drones to assist Army units with taking out small enemy drones. The drone itself was originally designed for hurricane tracking and model predictions, um, but it has modular aspects that really expand its use for tracking and swarming, and the warhead on the front can actually be changed out by the operator. The Raytheon vice president, who was discussing this, mentioned that you may have a swarm of drones engaging a different swarm of drones, where there, there's a... Um, and so that, that's exactly what these would be. They would be the kind that, okay, we see somebody's got a drone. We're not sure if it's the bad guys or not, but we're going to take this little coyote thing that's, you know, I wouldn't mm -hmm. say it's not a paper airplane-sized drone, but I don't know, 3x3, uh, three three, Danny, something like that, 4x3 feet-wise. Right. It's not going to be very big, but being modular, it can do all kinds of things. Now, in an entirely different way, there's a group of Marines down at 29 Palms right now that are testing out drones to move supplies, to 3D print certain uh, materials and pieces that are really hard to find in theater, and to have self-driving vehicles. Um, they're actually gearing up for a Marine Expeditionary Force level uh, training exercise that's going to include these drones. One of them is an unmanned UH-1 Huey. It is a, the, the helicopter of fame from Vietnam. They are still in use all over the world. Medevac helicopters, other, other reasons. Uh, Danny, imagine having to sign for one of those on a hand receipt. Your, your supply, that you, you, you guys mm -hmm. know how to take a Huey, a literal full-size Huey, the, the drone is the size of the helicopter, and send, send people off. That's just, that it blows my mind how cool I think that is, but it also really points at how close infantry, cav guys, MPs are getting to having this kind of tech as an everyday part of their, uh, their sign-off sheets. And then, in, a, in an, another different, different sector here, we have the Navy running tests on drone swarm technology, claiming current Navy ship defenses aren't adequate for drone defense. And in testing with an eight-drone swarm when on destroyers and battleships and stuff, at least one drone always gets through. And this percentage bears out even when you're adding more drones. They went up to, like, 50. And with 50 drones... Their system was able to get all of them at seven, but seven drones onto a battleship could disable it, depending on what kind of explosives or what, what, whatever ordnance they were taking. So, yeah, that, that's just unacceptable. Enter the LOCUST program. LOCUST, an acronym I don't, know, I don't recall what it means at the moment, is designing a way for a battleship to control its own swarm using the same coyote drones I was talking about earlier. It was the modularity that makes them so popular. The operator would only have to control the overall swarm, not individual drones. Um, the example they gave is an enemy operator in a nearby fishing vessel who sends the swarm from their location. I think that's such a stupid example because are you, are you counting on a small fishing vessel to go out into the South Pacific 
and find a battleship to be within range of their drone swarm? That doesn't sound like a very plausible thing to me. I could see drones right. being used, but short-range drones are short, short-range drones. How are they supposed to do those kind of things? So it seemed really dumb that that was, that was the example they chose to put. Yeah, agreed. And uh, the last thing I wanted to say, and this is, I, I didn't really do much research on this, but I did do a little bit of reading about it, is our drone situation here at home. More and more police departments are buying drones for a variety of, of purposes. Some of them, I think, are great. Uh, times when an officer would be in danger, going into an abandoned building or a hostage situation, you know, th th there are legitimate purposes. It's also ripe with the potential to be to be civil rights abuses in so many different ways. You, you know, I wrote an article some months back about militarization of the police and i called it the empire comes home mm -hmm. and my point was that for as long as empires have existed the policies of the empire that have been applied overseas tend to have an effect on society at home usually a negative effect and many of the policies and the excesses of empire tend to come home drones is a perfect example i'm scared to death of, dr of drones being used domestically. You bring up some really good instances where they could help, and I think that it is reasonable that we have surveillance when our police are doing an undercover operation, an important raid on a dangerous building. There's definitely times when drones seem appropriate. What concerns me is persistent surveillance becoming the norm. Because the empire, the American empire, has gotten completely used to persistent surveillance. We don't ask the enemy on the battlefield. We don't even ask the civilians who are innocent on the battlefield, and they, by the way, make up the majority of the people. We don't ask if it's okay for us to consistently surveil them, persistently, perpetually. We don't ask. So who's to say that there will be proper warrants, proper magistrates taking a look at the evidence to make sure it's probable cause before all of us are surveilled persistently here at home? That's dangerous. When Barack Obama ordered the assassination, I don't care what you want to call it, it was an assassination of Anwar al-Awlaki, the Yemeni cleric who was Yemeni-American and an American citizen. Uh, he ordered his execution in Yemen and also killed his 15-year-old son. Uh, since then, we have also, in a raid, killed his young daughter. But when... Obama decided to do this. I had no doubt that Anwar al-Awlaki was a dedicated terrorist and an enemy of the United States. That was true. I think there was enough evidence, open source, to believe that was true. But the Obama administration killed an American citizen from the sky, assassinated him, without providing any probable cause to the Department of Justice, without any internal checks from Congress, without any due process that would be the requisite before you arrested, let alone assassinated, an American citizen. Now, the Al-Laki case seems extreme because it's rare that that happens. We haven't made a policy yet or a habit of killing American citizens from the sky. But the fact that someone as, quote, liberal as Obama was willing to take that step without feeling any need to provide a public case to either Congress or the Department of Justice or to the American people as to why this was necessary or to provide any due process accordingly which is a constitutional right for all American citizens, scared me to death. And when you start talking about drone use at home by law enforcement, 
we haven't even solved the problem of cops treating white and black teenagers the same. Yep. Case after case after case, we haven't even figured out how to make human police officers treat members of different races equitably. You want to trust those departments? You want to trust the Ferguson Police Department with drones? Maybe armed drones someday? You want to trust the Baltimore Police Department, which tortures to death, essentially, Freddie Gray in the back of a police van? You want to trust that organization with persistent surveillance of its people? You want to trust the NYPD, which has yet to discipline an officer for choking to death Eric Garner on the street for allegedly selling loose cigarettes? And you want to trust the NYPD with drones? Scary. Drones are a tool of empire. They are a tool of the American empire, and they will come home. And rue that day. Rue the day that those drones come home. Because unless there are systems in place, unless our civil liberties are protected, and there are regulations in place ahead of time, expect your civil liberties to be violated. Because every historical example has shown that when the empire comes home, and when the tools of empire and militarism come home, they will inevitably take from your civil liberties. And, and, and that, that's a really scary thing. And so we spent, you know, Henry does an awesome job kind of laying out this case for the pros and cons of drones overseas. And, and that's very valuable. And then I think we're ending on the correct note by saying, what is this going to mean for American citizens? Because most Americans don't care whether Iraqis have any right to privacy. Oh. Most Americans aren't particularly concerned about even the lives of Yemeni revelers at a wedding party who are inadvertently killed. But Americans do care about their own privacy. They do care about their own families and their own friends. And this policy, this utterly new and an utterly transformative technology of war is going to come home to us. And you're going to have to care. And it's also going to come home to us when our adversaries start using them, because you're going to have to care. Let's debate this before that becomes a reality. Let's not wait until the government, which has already proven it will listen to all your phone calls, which has already proven that it will monitor uh, every, you know, every number that calls or you call or text or you text, and that they will gather all this information. This has already been proven. Edward Snowden showed us this, that the government is willing to essentially surveil you via digital technology. Yep. So let's talk about this before we give the government that same power for persistent surveillance with drones, because it's coming. It's coming. I had one other thought that I wanted to share about drones, and this is more back to, to the soldier side of it. Danny, I wonder how long it is until all this drone tech is back again centered on the small unit leaders and on the small unit soldiers that, you know, the, uh, it, se it seems like, again, we, we create this distance, we're continually creating this distance in combat, but like you mentioned, you can't take an area without troops on the ground. And so right there where the rubber meets the road, it, it, it's an entirely different tactic, or excuse me, an entirely different burden for soldiers to have to carry, but also it's a way to really very succinctly push war a little harder because, like I mentioned earlier with the 60-day window, 
action versus inaction when no Americans are in harm's way. Like you said, nobody really cares if people are looking at Somalis or Yemenis or, or Iraqis or whoever it happens to be. What, where's the humanity left? I, I yeah. I'm with you. I wanted drones over my head when I was walking into hostile villages or potentially hostile villages in Afghanistan. In Afghanistan. Um, but in the end, an Afghan could count on seeing my face and my interpreter's face and could count on an interaction that was inherently human mm -hmm. between myself and the Afghan. If you take the infantrymen or the ground-pounding scout out of the equation and try to police that village or pacify that village with drones, you do take a degree of humanity out of the war. And something is lost. Our collective humanity is damaged as a people. Because what the American people have to remember is every time a drone drops a bomb, on a civilian or on a bad guy or whomever that is being done in your name yep. that is being done in the name of the american people and to the people on the ground who suffer that they do not consider you innocent just because you don't read the new york times just because you're not up on what's going on in the war the yemenis under the drones that are being fired at them blame you they blame us all and I am concerned that our collective humanity is lessened through this kind of AI, through this kind of drone warfare. There are some serious questions about the justice of this, about juice in bellow, justice in war, okay, and, and the legality of some of this stuff. It is easy to rely on drones. It appears safer to rely on drones, but like you say... Where's the humanity in that? And I might be able to, usually not, but I might be able to convince an Afghan villager or an Iraqi city dweller in Baghdad that I have good intentions. We may be able to connect somehow as human beings. Uh, I may be able to show that I'm not a threat through my interaction with that person, either because I'm taking off my body armor or I'm pointing my gun down at the ground and I'm speaking to them like an like a normal human being, but a drone can't do that. It can't. It's a binary. It watches until it shoots. Yep. And it's a binary, shoot or no shoot, okay? And th th there's no explanation for it. The drone doesn't land and talk to the people and then hand out money uh, or apologies if someone is killed. That's not something the drone can do. So I, I think you're right that this is a bigger question than just tools of the trade or technology uh, this is about the nature of war and this is about what is done in the name of you the American public absolutely and let's just say one more time please pay attention to this now let's debate this now let's fix this and let's have the regulations in place now before it becomes a part of your life Okay, it's already the part and parcel of everyday life in northwest Pakistan. It's already part and parcel of everyday life in Mogadishu, Somalia. Those people live under the threat of the drone. They live in horror at the, the sound of the buzzing drone above. 
someday this will be in your world, whether it's our adversaries flying drones here or your own government and law enforcement flying drones here. Let's debate this and let's have something in place to protect ourselves now. Now is the time to debate, not after your civil liberties have already been taken from you again. Thank you for joining us today. Please come join the conversation at www.fortressonahill.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill or on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Fortress on a Hill. We want to hear from our listeners about the topics and issues pertinent to America's military and veteran communities. And last but certainly not least, Analyze your news and its sources very closely. Verify everything you read. And remember that no one, no matter how powerful, are above criticism, especially those with the power to send others into harm's way. We'll see you next time.